Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm Diana Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host, Arden O'Connor. And we have a great guest today who has had a diverse, creative, and what looks like very unusual career path. He is Dr. Jordan Schlain. He is a physician, entrepreneur, publisher, and a healthcare systems designer. And he does all of those things with an eye towards providing empathetic and complete care in a patient's um, care. So welcome, Dr. Schlain. Thank you. It's good to be here and with smart people. I wouldn't go that far yet. (laughs) Still early in the podcast. I'll be the judge of that. Okay. All right. So I know I built up in the the bio part your creative career. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and experience? Yeah. So I I guess it all starts like it always does uh, from mom and dad. And uh, I grew up with a father who was a very driven surgeon who was always available for his patients. And I was with him as a child at age four onwards up to probably high school, going on rounds with him every weekend and visiting his patients and seeing how much joy he brought by solving problems for them. So I I had a first hand front row seat to medicine and healing. Uh, And then in high school, my mother decided to get her, she was a social worker, but she went to get her PhD in in psychotherapy and studied uh, Freud and Jung and psychodynamics and psychology. And, And then I watched another one of my parents become a let's sit down and talk about it for a very long time. Uh, to solve more nuanced problems that weren't surgical. So I really had these twin forces of let's get it done and move on, and then let's spend a lot of time on something and you know peel back lots of layers of the onion. And I think that's where I was able to really kind of blend in my own career how to observe and, and design, if you will, a, a way to be a doctor. And, and I'll say that uh, I was told uh, ever since a very young age uh, from my father that I could be whatever I wanted when I grew up as long as I was a doctor. So <laughs> I didn't really have a choice in, in becoming a doctor, although I'm very happy I did it. But it was really by, by the force of his um, persistence that I went pre-med and went to medical school. And was your efforts on a cruise ship, I think, and in a resort hotel part of a rebellion or just part of curiosity? No. Okay. Yeah. So, so when I finished, um, so I was always into computers. Like I, I, I bought the, one of the very first Apple II computers. My dad bought it for me. I learned how to program. So I was always into coding and trying to see what the future w- would bring and what technology could bring to some version of of the future to make life better or at least more efficient um, without losing quality. So I always try to balance in my mind 
where do you get efficiency and, and where do you get quality and, and where do you lose quality when you try to get too efficient? So I'm always like, everything I look at is through those lenses. And when I did uh, finish my training in San Francisco and became uh, a, a doctor, uh, I, I was I joined an older gentleman who basically said, hey, look, uh, I'm going to retire in one year and I'd like you to you know, be on call, make very little money and be like a fourth year resident but in a year I'll retire and this is all yours. So I thought, you know, I, I was I was a cheap date back then and, <laughs> it, you know, fine, I'll make a little extra money than I made. Uh, you know, as a resident, you make 30,000 a year and you're working 36 hours, you know, every three days and 12 hour shifts in between. So, you know, if you, if you can make 50 and, and work less, it, it sounded like a great deal to me. So fast forward nine months, I did that. And then he didn't want to retire and wanted to renegotiate, at which point I being a principled human and being somebody who believes that their word and their reputation is all they have, I basically told him I'm out. Like I'm not, I'm not going to renegotiate with you after I just spent a year of doing what I said I was going to do. And, and you weren't, and you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And I, I kind of quit my job and didn't have anything going for me at the time and walked down the street, somewhat of an existential crisis and, and walked into a hotel lobby and, and just sat down with my head in my hands thinking, what was I going to do? Uh, and that was when I noticed that I was in a hotel lobby in downtown San Francisco, and I happened to be in a five-star hotel lobby. And I looked at the concierge desk, and being being somewhat of a curious human, I walked up to the concierge desk and asked, who is the doctor that takes care of your guests when somebody gets sick at this hotel? At which point the woman looked at me and said, who are you? I said, well, I could be the doctor that uh, sees your guests when somebody gets sick. And she said, doctor, with all due respect, this is a five-star hotel. And everything we do here is five-star service from the linens to the lunches to the limos. And I, I'm just the head concierge, which means I'm probably two-star smart compared to you. But everything we do for our guests is five-star. She said, if you're a doctor, and clearly she didn't know who I was at the time, that I was a doctor. She said, you're probably five-star smart, but your industry is one-star service. So if you wanted to be the doctor to my guest, you need to step up your game and do five-star service. At which point I said, well, could you teach me what that means to you? And she took me under her wing and I, I learned what five-star service meant from a chef concierge at a five-star hotel. And really what five-star service is, is it's, it's the ability to listen. It's the ability to follow up, follow through, do what you say you're going to do, be where you say you're going to be, make the things that happen should happen the way you said they were going to happen to the extent that you can control these things. It's, it's a lot of common sense, but it's a lot of care and attention to the fact that you're dealing with somebody else. So I, I always believed that medicine should be that anyway. But I didn't know that there was a method or a way uh, that people trained in that. So, you know, so then I, I became the doctor to the Mandarin Oriental and I was seeing presidents of countries and senators and, again, all completely serendipitous and, and happenstance. I, that was not my plan. But I, I needed to, you know, what do they say? It was, it was innovation by irritation. I had to solve the problem of I needed to pay rent and I didn't want to go back to my dad and ask for anything. So I was just kind of hustling to find ways to, to work. And then I went to the, so I did a bunch of house calls and I realized that these people were super appreciative that I would show up at their hotel room. I, because my father was a surgeon in town, I knew all the doctors in San Francisco so I could get specialty appointments set up pretty quick because they were friends of the family, so to speak. And I trained at the hospital and I kind of knew everybody from my own training. Um, and then, and then I, you know, all these other hotels started calling and saying, hey, can you be the doctor to the, our hotel? 
And within a couple of years, I had seven physicians working for me and uh, we had a very bustling and growing enterprise. And, you know, cruise ships called, law firms called, private equity firms called, anybody that wanted a doctor to answer the cell phone. So I was one of the first doctors in 1998 to hand out their cell phone and their email address. Doctors still don't do that in 2021. But I always felt like you need to meet people where they are. That's part of this five-star service. Make yourself available, but draw the boundary for like people that take advantage of it and cut them off if you have to. So that's kind of what led me to really start to understand, you know, how do you how do you engage in the I'll say the free market? Because most healthcare is predicated on insurance and rules and regulations and laws and it's a very ossified, rigid, inflexible system. And if you're a doctor, you know, it's like it's like swimming in honey trying to get anything done. And the world that I'd lived in was that and all of a sudden I was I was swimming in a warm water pool and I could get anything done I wanted because I didn't, I had private relationships with individuals, not with insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies and everybody else that wanted to like, tell me what to do because they don't know or, and didn't know the issues at hand in front of me, in front of these people that needed problem solved. Um, and then of course, uh, September 11th happened and the internet bubble crashed here in San Francisco and I had to lay everybody off, and I went from, you know, a, a you know, s- multiple seven-figure revenue to zero mm-hmm. in in about a month, and and that's where I learned about the free market, the old-fashioned way through almost bankruptcy. Um, so I, I I got a huge MBA and a lesson in growth and <laughs> failure and market forces and black swan events like all at once. It's so interesting to hear how somebody comes to their work. I guess my the question that immediately jumps to me, uh, Jordan, is sort of is the major differentiator between your practice and your dad's or a general practitioner. Does that revolve around service, or what are other ways in which you know the practice that you now run today? Um, and perhaps you can start by sharing a little bit about that. How is that different from you know what we considered like the old country doctor or your general practitioner, which we all kind of know is going by the wayside as a model that's sustainable for I think most of society. Well, it's really interesting. So I think the old country doctor, which my father kind of was at the beginning, and, and you know in the '60s when he was a doctor, there really wasn't health insurance. People paid the doctor for their you know, for their expertise and their trade craft. Um, And when somebody pays somebody for something else, there's a real respect and appreciation for that transaction. And there's accountability to that transaction. Um, What happened in the 70s with Nixon and uh, the, the rise or the beginning of the rise of the HMO is that family doctor, that doctor would come to your house that would do anything for you because, you know, there was a there was a reciprocal relationship happening is all of a sudden insurance companies got in the business of uh, delivering care versus stratifying and indemnifying against risk. And insurance companies are a financial instrument. They have no business and had no business doing that. But there's so much money in this pile of, of, of people that they got into the business of health plans. And when that happens, patients don't pay doctors anymore. They pay co-pays and they're resentful because they're also paying insurance. So all of a sudden in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, and even today, 
People are resentful for paying extra on top of their insurance, which makes it feel like the doctor's greedy or you know, trying to get some extra. What they don't understand is on the other side, the insurance companies aren't really paying the doctors much and they keep lowering their 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 payments and you know, it, it's a total scam. But I, I could talk for hours about that because I I railed against that machine for a while. But ultimately, the way I look at and what we're doing today is how would you want medical care delivered to you? And I ask myself that question every day. If this was my family in this situation, how would I want to design this experience? And so I, after that September 11th event, basically resurrected my practice and didn't do the house call only, transactional only, but I went from a transactional, reactive, hyper-connected and always available to a proactive, relational, always available practice. And then I started to design systems around future states that I know people are going to be entering into. So I, I kind of, in a way, think that it's, it's all about design, time, and future thinking in the service of some individual or their family's health. And when I say we take care of families and we organize ourselves into teams, very small teams, so each physician takes care of a a very small, limited number of of, uh, patients, but we have pediatricians who take care of the kids, internists like me that take care of adults, gynecologists that do women's health from little girls to older folks with all sorts of issues in the women's health arena from beginning to end. We have naturopathic doctors for those that want to kind of quote unquote use the least force necessary to try to solve a problem uh, with respect to you know lifestyle, diet, exercise, nutrition. There's you know supplements. There's a lot of ways to solve any one problem, but really it's understanding from the person in front of you what their risk tolerance is. Do they always want the most aggressive thing or do they always want the most conservative thing? Do they need to spend hours thinking about what decision they're going to make? And how can I be an advocate to them? How can I be their doctor, an advocate, and and show them the universe of options and the ones that I think will work for them? And then they'll know that I'm a co-pilot with them throughout the whole journey because their good outcome I mean, in a, in a perverse, this is going to sound a little bit strange, but their good outcome is my good income. Their bad outcome is my bad income. So it puts us on the same side of the ledger in terms of goals. We both want good outcomes for them. And I think they want good incomes for me. And I think they feel like if there's a bad outcome and I have to spend more time against a fixed annual fee, well, it's just less money for me and more time spent on a problem that I should have done a better job at. Which inherently, going back to this future thinking concept, uh, forces me, and I say forces in a very uh, pleasurable way, to try to design the future. Or to think long term and to think like, I used to play chess, and if you make that move, well, if you make that move, are you, are you protected by a piece and are you threatening a piece and is there another piece that you know, you're protecting? And so there's a lot of second and third and fourth order things you need to think about when you make any move forward. But in the world of medicine that exists today, doctors don't have time to think two steps ahead, let alone like they're just, and and even if they did, quote unquote, the insurance companies or the hospitals that own them, don't let them do those things because it's not in line with what the evidence says or what the 
algorithms say. And, you know, truth be told, there is no evidence for evidence-based medicine when you're dealing with individuals. Evidence is based on populations. I don't take care of populations. I take care of people, individuals. And I have to figure out where in that evidence this person might exist. And then I need to calibrate my efforts to ensure that like they're going to fit into where that evidence is. But it means that like not everybody fits in to one standard deviation away from the evidence. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I also wonder... You know, given the what you were talking about, how insurance companies became the third party in the relationship between individuals and their doctors, and and it imposed a barrier. How, what kinds of families are willing to go around that system and come and see you? What kinds of people become your patients? Well, it's it's a it's an interesting question because it's evolved over over time. And what I mean by that is back in, in 2002, when I started the subscription model, I had already taken care of a lot of people, you know, for the prior couple of years, and they saw what I could do, like, in, in a reactive mode. And then I switched to a proactive mode. And ultimately, uh, you know, back in the early days, people would come to me with a problem. Oh, my God, I've got this kidney stone. Can you help me? I want to sign up. I want to be in your good, you know, steady hands. Um and, and we said, like, we're not really urgent care on wheels and we're not urgent care subscription. And w- w- what started to happen is people, This one of the first families that joined uh, was an older couple. I say older, not that older. They were probably in their 60s at the time. I was probably in my mid-30s. Um, and they said, we want an old lawyer and a young doctor. We want someone who's going to be around through our whole lifetime and not have to switch and that we can trust and get to know. And and that can really help our family and guide us through the universe of healthcare, which is a very complex and complicated world and even chaotic. So the people that, that, that joined, uh, you know, in the mid 2000s and all the way up today are people that value uh, their health as an as an asset, I mean, I, I say that somewhat glibly. I don't think anybody really thinks of their health as an asset, but I think they realize that it's it it, it can't be taken for granted. Um, and if if people really are honest with themselves prior to like what we've built in this whole field of private medicine, people's strategy has been hope. I hope nothing happens to me. I hope that if it does, somebody will guide me through it. And I hope that if they guide me through it, they're connecting all the various dots of that, of that you know, air traffic control being guided through the healthcare system. And enough people have, have seen how hope works. It doesn't work. There's always going to be some, some data that didn't get to the right person in time. Extra procedures were done. You know, one person interpreted something. There's no quarterback. There's no, you know, and so if you think about the table of people's lives, people, who do people trust in their life? So we we really live in the kind of the trust economy uh, more than anything else. And people want to know that there's someone they can trust that does what they say. You know, it's back to this five-star thing, uh, the five-star certification. And, you know, now at the table of your life, you want to have probably a good money manager <laughs> so that like someone you can trust them with your estate planning, everything. Um, you know, you, you maybe want a, a rabbi or a priest or a, you know, imam to, you know, guide you through the spiritual stuff. And then you probably want a doctor who's really got your back 
and your family's back and, and is super connected, like what else do you need in life? I mean, outside of your, your, your family and friends, if you need expertise outside of your own in places that you don't really want to become an expert in, but you want to know you've got that person who's thinking about you when you're not, who's going to call you with new observations or in scientific literature that applies to you. People want to live their lives. They don't want to be doctors. And I mean, a lot of people like like to geek out. And during the COVID epidemic, everybody became a doctor. It was hilarious. Like they 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 think they were the smartest people in the room because they used to be a, a banker or a finance person. And you know, I, I I bit my lip and chuckled by the by the kind of the conclusions people would draw so quickly based on just stuff they read versus on the the nuances of the scientific literature. So so I I hope that answered your question. I think it did. Definitely. I guess my question is around, you know, how does access to wealth change the outcome of how you're able to deliver healthcare? I think most people would presume that that, you know, the outcomes are always going to be better if you have access to endless financial resources. And I'm curious if the outcomes are better. I'm also curious, you know, how it actually impacts as a physician the way in which you deliver services. So, so great question, and I maybe I should have brought that up earlier, but there is a very well-known, well-established concept. It's been written about in the Wall Street Journal and the New England Journal of Medicine called VIP syndrome. And historically, people with means um, give money to hospitals, and I've got a whole theory on why they do that. Um, I think their parents wanted them to be a doctor. They went into finance. Uh, they made a lot of money, and then they gave money to the hospital so that when they're at a cocktail party and someone says, my daughter's sick, they can be the doctor and say, let me connect you with the CEO or the board, and I can get you health care. So they become a doctor by proxy. But the truth is, is that's all reactionary medicine. It's, you know, you're going to get hooked up by somebody who's going to try to hook you up and get you the best um, doctor, but sometimes the best doctor that is referred to you is the best at fundraising uh, or donation collections um, or good at wallet biopsies is what they, what we call them inside baseball. And so VIP syndrome is, is basically predicated on people will try to fall all over you and do more than is needed. And then the VIP syndrome on the other side is people are intimidated by wealthy or powerful people and they do, they don't want to bother them and they do less than is, than is appropriate. So, so that's we, we see a lot of that. People like, oh yeah, I know I, I know the board of the hospital. I'm on the board. Yeah, great. And and they think that's good medicine, and it, it, they're connected to good doctors for sure. And some of the hospitals are great, but that there's no one minding like all the <laughs> the details of your health over time. So going back to design is how how do I know Arden what the best health story for you is like just because you're x age and x sex and and have x problems like you can't fit you into an algorithm i i have to get to know you and i've got to understand you and i have to build trust with you and we need to go through stuff together and we have to disagree and we have to argue uh it you know but we have to argue like we're right but we have to listen like we're wrong and we have to do that together and, and when you do that over and over again, and, and you realize that ultimately, I have zero incentive other than your good outcome, I, I will push back on you if you think 
Either you know something that I don't, but you actually don't, but your friend told you. And so it's this, it's this dialogue that happens over long periods of time that, that, that generates this bedrock of trust. And, and with that trust, I can, uh, as your proxy, go, I can talk to experts on your behalf. I can come back to you. So I can save you a lot of time and energy so that you don't have to see a bunch of doctors. I do that in the background. And then I present you my findings and my, my, my discoveries in, in talking to experts or reading literature on how we should solve this problem. And I'm available by email and text and phone. But we have rules. You know, just because you're paying me uh, doesn't mean I'm your medical valet. And if you abuse me, I've got a family, I've got a life, I've got friends, I've got hopes and dreams too, um, then I, I, I will tell you that you're you're being abusive or you're overstepping your boundary. And if that's not okay with you, you know, you can fire me and I'll give you your money back. Or I can fire you and I'll give you your money back because it's really not about the money. Um, naturally, I've got to get paid, but I, I, my life's too short to deal with people that are either abusive or are boundary crossers at every turn. And they don't understand what this is. So we're very clear in describing to people what we are and what we're not. And, you know, the, the easiest metaphor to anchor to is like we are a family office for health and medicine, you know, and and we we say no to people. And, we you know, a lot of people tell us what they want and we tell them what they need. And that can create a dynamic of, of discomfort. But we're happy to enter into a place of we're happy to enter an uncomfortable place with people. Because if you don't go to those uncomfortable places, you don't really get to the comfortable places in the end. You're always living in this quasi pseudo comfortable place. So we like to be in a comfortable place, but we and we know that that means sometimes going to that uncomfortable place. That's great. I also do some client responsive work and I received a call one time while I was driving in the car around 930 and it was from a client and I answered it concerned because it was 930 at night and the person on the other end of the line said, um, hey, thanks for answering. I just wanted to make sure my Bluetooth was working. And I realized, okay, I hadn't had that difficult conversation <laughs> that you're telling. Yeah, well, you have to have that up front. And we tell people we're not for everybody. Like, we're just not. And, you know, there are a lot of people with privilege in this world that, like, no one ever says no to them. No one ever pushes back. No one ever, you know. But, you know, at the end of the day, humans are <laughs> existentially challenged and insecure. It's just the, just they are. And, and if you make them, like, feel okay in that place and not, like, I don't want to, I don't, I don't need to be right. I need to get it right. And I, and I try to, inf you know, I think we as a, as a group and as, 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 as clinicians here, um, try to like give people the opportunity to also want to get it right. Cause you know, we're, we're wired to be right. Um, but in order to be right, you have to ask the right questions. And if you ask the wrong questions and you get the right answer, and you think you're right, well, you're not. So a lot of it goes down to this, you know, going back to the dialogue. Like to me, conversations and dialogues are the fundamental unit of humanity. Uh, and, and you have to engage in conversation. It's how you learn if you're listening. 
So we're, we're pretty clear on that because we, we, we've been abused by, by people and, you know, we're like, peace out. That's not for us. <laughs> I hear you. What have been some of the surprises that you've seen as you've started your practice? I would say that the biggest, I guess, surprise, and it's, it's kind of an it's like anticlimactic surprise, is that people are just people. And when they take their clothes off or, or when they're in the exam room or they're wearing a very safe and vulnerable space, everybody has the same issues. <laughs> Slightly different. But, but, but there's nothing new. There's very little new out there. And, and I, you, know, you know, a lot of people think that the, the wealthy and the powerful, like, they're somehow different. They're not. They all have the same issues, just, just at a different scale. They all have the issues with their kids or their parents or their friends or their job, you know, it's, you know, and, and I guess that's the biggest surprise, um, which is not that big of a surprise, but it, it, it makes it easier to do your job when you know that like, you're, you're just here to help people and their families. I mean, I guess the other big surprise is how much uh, ability we have to organize a family big and small around medical issues. For example, I had a dad who, uh, I take care of the dad, my teachers take care of the kids, my other partner takes care of the wife. And you know, he just wouldn't send me his blood pressure on a regular basis and he had high blood pressure and I think he was in denial and he liked to drink and he was a very successful, still is, very successful guy. And I said, look, you know, the number one cause of dementia is untreated high blood pressure. So like, I don't wanna be talking to you when you're 60 and you can't remember anything. So can we please get your blood pressure under control? And, and you have to just check it and send it to me. And he, he couldn't do it. Just, uh, you know, it was just, he was busy, you know, traveling the world. And so I, I reached out to his kids that were 12. I'm like, hey, I'm going to teach you how to use a blood pressure cuff. Mm. I, want you to I want you to do it on daddy every morning and every night. And you're responsible for your dad's living a long and healthy life. They're like, they were all in. So I got the kids to, and the dad was like, all right, you got me, checkmate. You know, how am I going to say no to my kids? <laughs> and so I was able to, so, but, you know, and by, you know, and then we have another, yeah, there's lots of different uh, versions of, of, of that in, in whether it's uh, addiction or mental health or, uh, you know, someone who's in denial about a problem that we can, we can engage the whole family and rally people around, you know, their loved one. And we and we can get I mean, we can get way more done than a traditional office because I even call psychologists and psychiatrists with the permission of, of course, of my members and my patients. I say, look, I want to know everything about you. And so and so, you know, I was talking with a psychologist to one of my newer patients recently, and they said, look, this guy catastrophizes everything and thinks he's going to die. Now, when I met him, I didn't get that news. But now that I know that, like every little thing that, that gets sent to me or every time I inter engage with him, I know that like I have to be super mindful of how I frame things. And it's, and you know, and, and you know, you'd call psychiatrists and psychologists like, oh my God, a doctor has never called me before, which just speaks to the fragmented universe we have. Like, shouldn't we all be talking to each other on this side of the fence about you so that we, we have a thesis that we can, that we can go tackle together? But that doesn't happen. And it's because there's, there's no time and there's no real desire or drive to get that done because 
that's because it's never happened before. And a lot of people think that because it's never happened before, it can't happen. And, and that, that goes into back to design. Like, you know, you actually have to design a system. Like what would be an ideal universe and then go try to build it and learn as you go. So, I, you know, I'm a fail forward fast type of person because, I, you know, and, and by the way, the world's changing pretty fast with all these new devices and healthcare's changing. And so like we're constantly experimenting over here not at the you know risky experiments that could endanger or, or risk people's health and well-being, but in terms of technologies, in terms of process, in terms of networks, you know we're constantly curious and and exploring and learning. Yeah. Um, and the other thing you know is most of the physicians here, you know they could read a New England Journal article and break it down and tell you why it's a bad article and you know why the confounding variables that weren't really said. You know they're very very smart and so. We have an entire, we're like a little mini academic medical center. We're like a little mini, um, you know, Stanford here because we have, you know, expert speakers come talk to us every month. Uh, we have uh, internal talks. We, we do journal clubs and, and grand rounds. So we're very interested in, in collaborating with each other and with the external world and learning. And so we never stop. Well, based on that comment, I'm going to ask you the last question. This has been great, and I think you've identified so many issues that we don't only see in the medical systems, but on the behavioral health side of fragmentation and lack of care coordination really impacting on a negative side uh, patient outcomes and and really you know a system that was not designed to meet any type of customer service expectations. Um, and it sounds like those have been addressed in the model that you've created, which is fantastic for the clients you serve. But I'm now going to ask the question that I hate being asked, and we get asked it all the time, sort of given the intensity and the concierge nature of what you offer, you know, how do you think about growth? You know, the question of how do you scale it, or is scale not the goal? Like, how do you think about what you're doing and how it makes a, a mark on the larger medical system in our country? So I think about growth in the context of quality and efficiency, like I mentioned earlier. And we here grow at the speed of quality. If we grow too fast, we break and we can't deliver on the promise. And, and if you're trying to build a reputation or in the corporate world, maybe that's called a brand. Uh, if you're trying to build a brand, you have to acknowledge that a brand is a promise. And if you make a promise, you better keep it. And like I believe that a lot of companies that fail grow too fast and they lose their culture and, and it's all about more things faster, not more things slower or better. Like better is better, more isn't always better. A lot of people think more is better because if you have more in your bank account, that's better. But sometimes better is better. <laughs> and so, you know, each team is always going to be small. We ensure that physicians uh, onboard new clients at a clip that is reasonable, given how much time and energy it takes to build relationships with people. We cap each physician team to a small number. And if we need to grow, we add another team. And, you know, in San Francisco, we have nine teams and we're going to stop. We can't, this, this office is full. 
in in New York, we currently have three teams. We think we can get to six teams. But even at six teams when New York is full, that New York office feels and is still a boutique. It's small and it's intimate. If we needed to open up another New York office because the demand was high, we would set up another office and make sure that the culture, because that's really the secret sauce here, stays intact. And that that's a culture of curiosity, collaboration, a little bit of levity, a lot of hard work, and the soul food of taking great care of people and watching those good outcomes one after the other. That was a great <laughs> place to finish. Thank you, Dr. Schlein, for joining us today. That was really interesting about not just the history of modern medicine, but the way it can be delivered and a hope for even better delivery coming forward. So appreciate your participation today. For those of you who joined us, we would ask that you like or five-star our podcast on any of the platforms you use and visit us on our website at www.oconnorprofessionalgroup.com. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.